Oh, Father God, it is uh, wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be reminded of these uh, great truths of your faithfulness to your promises of old uh, to send a saviour into the world, a saving king. Uh, we thank you for our time already, the songs that we've been able to sing in praise to you. And we thank you that now we come to hear from you through your word, uh, to hear you not only speak, but to, to act as you transform our lives uh, through your gospel, through your word. So please open the ears of our hearts, uh, our minds, but our hearts too, Father. Please work at the deepest level of our being uh, to shape us uh, with this wonderful news of all that you've done for us. Uh, uh, yeah, in the Lord Jesus. So please, um, yeah, speak to us today for your glory's sake. Amen. Reading from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And g'day everyone. Good to see you. Uh, Christmas, as Steve mentioned, just around the corner. Um, uh, I'll reiterate what Steve said. So Christmas Day at 9am, just uh, a way of helping people get up to Adelaide if they need to. Uh, but Carol's the week before. It's really our... Um, kind of um, one of our main opportunities in the year to invite the community to come and celebrate the good news of Jesus. Uh, so that'll be on the 18th. Um, and uh, uh, really looking forward to that. Um, one thing to, um, that you can do to help make the morning a, a, a success is if you're up for it, if you're game, come dressed as one of the nativity characters. Um, I'll leave that with you. Uh, it'd be great to have uh, lots of people dressed up and kids as well. If you come dressed up, or parents, uh, your kids are out there, but if your kids come dressed up, they will get to take part on the stage and it'd be great to have lots of kids taking that, up, that opportunity up too. So that's on the 18th. Come and chat to me if you want to talk about either of those two things. Okay, uh, but we're thinking about uh, Christmas on the way. It's a time of waiting these weeks. Christmas is a time of waiting, of expectation and longing. And I reckon if you have a dog, then you know exactly what longing looks like, of expectation, of waiting. Maybe you've, you've kind of experienced this, you know, the kind of the, the look they get on their face when, when they have to wait with longing for what's coming. 
Um, so this is kind of like the state we're in uh, as we lead up to Christmas. The big day is just around the corner. The anticipation grows as it gets closer and closer. It's, I reckon it's an experience we're all familiar with, isn't it, in lots of ways. Uh, and the first Christmas was just like that. The first Christmas was just like that. So we wait for Christmas morning to open our presents. But Mary was waiting for the greatest present, the child to be born. And in a way, it wasn't just Mary who was pregnant. The whole creation, the whole cosmos was waiting, was pregnant, longing in anticipation, holding its breath for the moment when Jesus would be born. Why? Why was that so? Why was this, why, why was this anticipation um, in the air? Well, that's what we've been reflecting on over these last few weeks. Uh, this tiny baby would be nothing less than the full and final word of God. God's Son come to reveal the Father to his creation. But he would not re- he'd not only be truly God, that's what we looked at a c- couple of weeks ago, uh, he, would, he would also be the true human. He'd be the one who would perfect our humanity, show us the life we were made for, a life of connection to God, of humble dependence upon him, a life of self-giving love to the people around us. But there's more even than that. There's more even than that. So we looked last week at that passage from Philippians 2, if you remember, and we saw how Jesus came down low. He came low in taking on flesh But that wasn't low enough. He kept going lower. That wasn't the ultimate reason why he came. The end goal, he didn't just take on flesh, he kept going down. He went lower still. And there's something here that's critical for us to see. See, we're not just ignorant and need Jesus to reveal God to us. I mean, that's true, but that's not the only thing going on. It's not not as if... Our Christmas is good news simply because Jesus reveals God to us. I mean, that's wonderful, but there's more going on. And it's not just that we need a model of a true and perfect human. The darkness that Jesus came to drive out actually goes much deeper than that. It's actually much more confronting for us. That's why we saw last week. Jesus didn't come low just once on that first Christmas. He kept going, he kept stooping, he kept emptying himself, humbling himself all the way to the cross, all the way to the cross. So that passage we had read out um, from this beautiful letter to the Galatians is a really wonderful encapsulation of this emptying of Jesus that begun at Christmas and found its fulfillment at Easter and its wonderful meaning for everyone who comes to him who puts their trust in him. So it's, it is a rich, complex passage. There's lots going on there that we're not going to get into. What we, what we will do this morning is really just focusing on a few verses, on verses 4 to 7 of chapter 4. Uh, it'll be up on the screen. If you've got Bibles, uh, it's probably helpful to have them open too, just so that you can kind of flick your eyes around where we are. But So th- there's the scene, right? There's, the world is longing, it's groaning under the weight of sin. But God is the sovereign God who has all time in his hands, And so from the first moment, the first Adam and the whole world in him, from the time he fell in selfishness and pride, God promised a rescuer. He promised to Eve a seed, a descendant who would crush Satan 
and all his destructive power. And so if you know the story, that promise gets focused in on one man, on Abraham, uh, and the promise of his seed, of the one who would come from him who would bring God's blessing to the world. And so as the story goes on, God sets up all of these signposts and shadows that were pointing towards this coming rescuer, this redeemer in the history of Israel. Everything was like straining forward, pointing ahead towards this moment. So that's why we sing that song we just sang. Oh, come. We're putting ourselves in that mindset before Jesus came. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. That's what the world was waiting for with bated breath. And then Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. And at that moment, it's as if the whole world kind of lets out this sigh. Um, the angels sing, the stars proclaim his birth. The moment, the moment is here. The, it's the moment that divides history, right? It actually does. It's the moment that divides your history, that determines history. God sent his son when the, the time, the set time had fully come. Uh, he was a son who was born of a woman, so that's what we looked at last week. This is Eve's seed that was promised to her, the son of Adam who becomes the new Adam, our brother who is the head of a new humanity, born of a woman, born under the law. Um, and here is Abraham's true seed, the one who lived perfectly under God's law, who fulfills every promise of God in the Old Testament. So you've got, you get the picture here. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Abraham and Israel, the true son of God, the true son of man. And why did he come? Why did he come? Not only to reveal God, not only to reveal true humanity, but let's keep reading. He came to redeem, to redeem those under the law. So this whole idea of redemption, to redeem something, it has to do with slavery. It's all about slavery. Um, it's about paying a price to free someone out of slavery. So friends, in the end, this is the Bible's verdict on us, that all of us actually are slaves. You know, that Bob Dylan song, if you're, you can talk to me later, but you've got to serve somebody. He was right in the end. You've got to serve somebody. We're, we're all slaves in the end. The Jewish Christians Paul was writing to had been slaves under the law before Christ came. That's what he was talking about earlier on. It's a bit tricky to get your head around, but verse 3 says this. So also when we were underage, sort of before Jesus came, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But the non-Jewish Christians in Galatia were slaves too. So a couple of verses later, Paul writes this in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, by nature, are not gods. The picture we're getting here, all of humanity is in this very deep, real, tragic way enslaved. We're, we're, we're held captive by powers beyond our control. We fall again and again into what's being talked about there in verse 8, into idolatry, worshipping created things rather than the creator. Our idols promise us freedom, but they only give, 
they kind of just lead us into more and more slavery, actually, in the end. And Christmas is good news of great joy because the freedom it proclaims, well, the freedom it proclaims is, is so wonderful because of the horror of the slavery that it came into. The light shines so brightly because the darkness is so deep and real. And it's not just darkness out there, it's darkness in here. In here, for you and me, for all of us. So this is kind of the... Uh, Christmas, actually, the news of Christmas proclaims that you have a problem. A serious problem that goes right to your core. And a problem that until you acknowledge it, Christmas won't be wonderful, liberating news. It just won't. It'll be tinsel and prezies and backyard barbecues, all great things. But it won't be a thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. It won't be that to you. To get that, this is the background that we need to see Christmas as. You need to see and accept the reality of your slavery apart from Christ. You need to see and accept the reality also, not just of that, but that Jesus came to redeem you, to purchase you, to buy you back, to pay the price, to tear off the chains so that you could be wonderfully and eternally free. That's what makes Christmas a thrill of hope. But it's not just, do you notice what Paul does? It, it's not just buying us back and setting us free, kind of into neutral. So Jesus frees us from slavery and then says, right, off you go, on your own. That's not, God has actually something far better. That would just lead us back into slavery, wouldn't we just find another master to follow who's not God? God has something far better in mind. Verse 4, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. So God doesn't just kind of set us free and cut us loose. He redeems us through Christ so that he might bring you close to his heart. He might adopt you into his family. And there's actually more going on even than that. It's not just kind of adopt you into his family in a general kind of sense. Notice what is being said here. It says, you receive adoption to sonship. Everyone does. Men and women, boys and girls. You, this, now, what's going on? <laughs> is this just um, kind of ancient sexism at play? No. There's something very important going on here. Everyone who has faith in Christ, men and women, boys and girls, all who come to him receive this adoption to sonship. To sonship. This is a profound theological truth. What Paul's doing here is making it clear that what we receive when we put our faith in Jesus, what we receive when we put our faith in the Son, is His sonship. His sonship. We enter into His perfect relationship with His Father. 
He takes all that is ours on himself, and we get all that is his. So the Son of God became human so that we humans could share in his sonship. Friends, that is a reality if you are trusting in Jesus. That's a reality that doesn't change depending on how you feel about it. It's a status. It's a status that you automatically have in Christ. You have been adopted into this sonship. Like the papers have been signed. It's all been done. It's true of you if you're trusting in Jesus. Uh, But a child who's adopted won't always sort of feel like they're part of their new family. Their, their experience, maybe their feelings won't always match up to the objective reality. And it's the same with us in, and, and, and God through Christ. So do you see what God does here? He goes even further. He changes us on the inside, subjectively, in our experience, by giving his, us his own spirit. He makes it possible for us to, for our adoption to sonship, which is wonderfully outside of ourselves, objective, it's true, doesn't depend on our feelings, but God makes it possible for that adoption into Christ's sonship to become a living reality in our hearts. Not just a fact out here, but a truth, a wonder in here. Because you are his sons, verse 6. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So we're told that Jesus had the spirit without measure. And that makes sense. The son who was, he was the son who from all eternity lived in perfect love with his father in the union and bond of the spirit, in the love of the spirit. And that same spirit is now ours in Christ. Do you notice it's the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father? Uh, Paul is showing us again uh, that, what, see what he's doing here? We get in on Jesus' relationship with his Father. Uh, that we are so intimately united to Jesus that everything that's his is ours. Uh, it means that not just his relationship with the, with the Father in the power of the Spirit, as, as wonderful as that is, it, uh, you read the last verse we're going to look at, it means it, it, there's a future element to this as well. So verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. In Christ you are an heir. That's what sonship means. You are an heir to God's eternal kingdom. So he gives all of this. He gives us. He gives you if you're in him. He gives you all that is his, all of it. And he takes on himself all that is yours. Everything that kept you from God. All of your selfishness and pride. All of your sin and darkness and death. That's redemption. Christ taking that on himself and paying the penalty, the price for it. That's the price he paid. This wonderful redemption from slavery to sonship was was achieved for us through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. 
Now, Paul doesn't go into that in the passage we read, but it's, one, it's actually one of the first things he says in this letter. So if you've got your Bibles, flick back to chapter 1. It'll be on the screen too, though. Uh, right after he says, G'day to them, in verse 3, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. It's talking about the cross. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us to redeem us, to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And, and this is kind of weaved through the whole letter, this idea that Jesus is the sacrifice who achieves our redemption. Uh, in chapter 3, it says this, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by sort of taking that curse on himself, so, what does all this mean? It means that this is actually the deep, true, truest, real meaning of Christmas. Of Christmas. Christmas is not primarily a family time. Christmas is not primarily a time to give and receive gifts to each other. As good as those things are, right? As wonderful as they are. But at its true core, Christmas is a time to remember with awe and wonder the gift that God gave, the redemption he accomplished through this baby, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And the way he accomplished that, the only way he could have, was through sacrifice was through Jesus emptying himself, remember from last week, down, 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 right to the depths, emptying himself all the way to death, becoming a curse for us. Okay, a bit more church history now. We're going to change modes. We've been doing some church history over the last few weeks. I hope you've enjoyed it. I, at least one of us has. Um, <laughs> But this was one of the key rediscoveries of the grace of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that happened in the 16th century. If you know that period of time, the 16th century was known as the Reformation. This gospel of the free grace of God in Christ, it had been lost, it had been lost. But God brought it back to light in this century through people like this guy, Martin Luther, uh, one of the key reformers of the church, and he had this great illustration he would use for, for why this is such good news, for the good news of the gospel. Uh, and he what he did, he imagined a, a wealthy, great, powerful king and a poor, unclean peasant girl who, against all the odds, fall in love and, and against all expectation, get married. And he pictures this marriage, right? And he says, in that moment, they say to each other, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. And in that moment, the wealth of the king, the kingdom itself, now belongs to his queen. But there's another side to this, isn't there? The king takes all her poverty on himself. He bears that cost. So there's a quote here. It's not on the screen. Just listen. Who then 
This is Luther writing. Who then can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here, this rich and divine bridegroom, Christ, marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast of as her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins, in the face of death and hell, and say, If I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I have believed, has not sinned. And all his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Just great, wonderful truths. I hope you can indulge me with one more. Uh, this guy, another reformer in the 16th century, a guy called John Calvin. Um, he wrote this. Again, not on the screen, but you can see a summary of it there. He says, we, dare, we, we may dare assure ourselves that eternal life of which he is the heir is ours that the kingdom of heaven into which he has already entered can no more be cut off from us than from him. Again, we cannot be condemned for our sins, from whose guilt he has absolved us, since he willed to take them upon himself as if they were his own. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, that by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. Taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, he has clothed us with his righteousness. It's a wonderful passage, but do you notice how it started? We may dare assure ourselves. We may dare assure ourselves of all of that. That is the work of the Spirit in us, to testify that we are God's children, heirs according to the promise. And if by the Spirit you have received God's gift, if you have come to put your faith in Jesus... If you've put on what Luther calls the wedding ring of faith, then you too can, can dare to assure yourself of all of this. And at the end of the day, Christmas and Easter that flows from it is the absolute once and for all guarantee that you are completely known, all the darkness that is within you, every part of it is known, and you are so deeply loved by your Redeemer who has taken that darkness on himself and given you his light, who's taken your burden to give you his freedom, 
taken your slavery to give you his liberty. The Apostle Paul knew that. So he writes this earlier in this letter that we're looking at, finished with this verse. It's a beautiful and really simple testimony that Paul writes. The second half of this verse says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved not just the world, not just God's people as a whole, who loved me and gave himself up for me, for me. You can dare say that too in Christ. Christmas, friends, raises all kinds of issues for us. For some of us, it's just exhausting. (laughs) Uh, For others of us, it can be a time of increased loneliness or tension and strain in relationships. The gospel doesn't sort of paper over those griefs. It doesn't. It takes them with full seriousness. Jesus knows the reality of the pain that flows out of humanity's slavery to sin and death. But that baby in the manger was was the eternal son, true God, true man, come to redeem you out of that slavery, to purchase you with his blood, to give you hope and life and peace, even in a despairing and dying and anxious world. Because the Son of God loved you and gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Humble us, our God, to receive this sobering news of Christmas that the need was so great, the darkness so deep, our slavery so all-encompassing that it took nothing less than God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, entering this world, taking on flesh, and not just that, but emptying himself all the way to the cross in order to redeem us, to buy us back. Give us a thrill of hope this Christmas, our God. And help us to know that in this wonderful gospel, we are not left in slavery, but we are redeemed into sonship. And that we can say, this life that we live, we live by faith, trusting in the the Son of God, in Jesus our Lord, who loved us, who loved me, and gave himself up for me. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.